Could you please turn with me, uh, if you have a Bible or a, uh, a smartphone, could you please uh, turn with me to, or scroll with me to the book of Hebrews, the end of Hebrews uh, chapter 4. And if you weren't here uh, last week, uh, I'm going to read that wonderful uh, text. We're going to read that together Uh that, that last section about Christ being our great high priest. Priests represent people before God. That is the important thing. They represent people before God. The high priest had a role in the book of Leviticus chapter uh, 16. You should read that section. It is very good. And once a year, the high priest would go into the innermost part of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies, which was a copy of God's presence here on earth. And his job was to, after offering a sacrifice for his own sins of a bull, he would offer an atoning sacrifice for the covenant people of Israel. And so this section in the book of Hebrews from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to uh, the end of chapter 7, is a call to look at Jesus being a superior high priest. Last week, uh, in verses 14 to 16, we saw three things uh, about Jesus as high priest. One, that he is ascended. He has passed through the heavens and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. But that doesn't mean uh, that he is now aloof and remote and doesn't care about us because he's with, uh, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is also uh, sympathetic to us. And then thirdly, he provides for his people. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in a time of need. So that was last week, and here this week we, we come to chapter 5, and as I was wrestling with this text this week, we see many of the exact same things repeated in this section of chapter 5, 1 to 10. We see many of the same things that we've seen in chapter 1 chapter 3, and especially in chapter 2. And we should take notice of that, because when you've got repetition in Scripture, you know, preachers like to repeat themselves, do they not? Uh, That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's repeating himself, and we need to take that as a reminder that this is important. The question being answered in chapter 5 is, what makes Jesus qualified to be our high priest? And the answer, I'm going to give it to you right now, the answer, summary, is that Jesus is qualified to be a better high priest because in his relationship with humanity, he was and still is compassionate And in his relationship with God, he was faithful. Compassionate towards humanity, faithful towards God. And that's what makes Jesus qualified. Let's read uh, the word of God. We will start in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Jesus Christ was qualified to be our great high priest precisely uh, because he was compassionate towards humanity. That's the uh, first uh, section. High priests, we see in the first three verses of chapter 5, high priests have to be humans. And you might say to that, well, duh, uh, what, what, what are your other options? Well, there could be some. Um, it's what this is saying is not an angel. We've heard a lot of talk about angels up until this point in the book of Hebrews. Not an angel. And this helps us to see that Jesus truly was a man. In verse 7 it says, in the days of his flesh. And that helps us guard against beliefs uh, like the ancient heresy of docetism. Uh, docetism, the docetists uh, believed that Jesus Christ wasn't actually truly a man. He just appeared to be a man. He was kind of just had the appearance on the outside of being a man, but it wasn't really what he was. And I could almost think the, the closest modern parallel that we can think of uh, to that view is, uh, is Superman, right? Clark Kent is an alien. He's not, he looks like a man, but he's 
Not, nothing about him is actually man. He just appears to be. He's an alien. He doesn't feel like humans feel. He doesn't struggle like humans feel. And I'm feeling like an idiot right now talking about something made up. Um, but, but that is... Uh, docetism. So this is guarding against that view. It is very important that the high priest be a human being. And we're told there that priests were men appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and then we see why, for sins. That's important. That's why the office exists. Sin separates the curse of sin, which we begin reading about in Genesis chapter 3, alienates men and women from God. It brings pain, it brings trouble, it brings death, and it brings the second death, which we call uh, hell. And as this curse is placed upon humanity for their sin against God, right at the end of Genesis chapter 4, there's a great little line, where it says they began to call on the name of the Lord. And the implication behind that is that very early on, people began to offer sacrifices for their sins and ask God for forgiveness and offer Him worship. That's what that means. Priests were constantly every single day confronted with the implications and the results of the curse. Every animal that they killed, daily sacrifices in the temple and the, earlier the tabernacle, showed them this reality that the wages of sin is death. And priests, we are told here in chapter 5, in, ver, in, uh, in verse 2, it said, they had to suffer well. They themselves were beset with weakness. They had to be moved to compassion to serve the people that they were called to represent. Remember, they're representing a group of people as their priest before God. They had to be compassionate. Can you imagine what an uncompassionate priest would be like? They would simply stop offering sacrifices. I mean, that actually happened a lot in Israel's history. Suffering and understanding of our own weaknesses has the potential to make us more compassionate towards other people. Have you found that? You go through some suffering, you go through a hard time, it helps you be more compassionate to other people. It helps make us more submissive. It helps make us sometimes more selfless. If we handle it well. If we don't handle suffering well, what's the opposite side? It can make us bitter and selfish and we just hate on everyone around us and very hard on other people. I'm sure you've met such people that have had very hard lives and it's caused them to be very gentle and warm and compassionate. And then you've seen on the other side people that just become bitter and hurt. Being aware of their own weaknesses was to cause the priest to be compassionate to those who they represent. 
And Jesus' compassion for the people he's called to represent is far greater than that of any other high priest. His compassion is exemplified in a far greater way than any of these other priests. And the reason for that is because he gave himself up for those people. That's huge. That's, that's what this is saying. Priests had to be compassionate. They offered sacrifices. Jesus offered himself. Truly offered himself. I want to read this because it's really a repeat. It's a nice tight summary in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. It says this. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to be made like us, had to die in our place, take the punishment that we deserved, and he shows that he is truly compassionate towards us because he gave himself up. And the good news, and we, we saw that in verse 15 of chapter 4, the good news is that now Jesus being ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, he remains compassionate says in Hebrews chapter 7 that he lives to make intercession for us right now. Jesus is praying and caring for his people so that we can come to God seeking his mercy and grace on a day-by-day basis. That's good news. Jesus knows full well the weakness of our humanity. So Jesus is compassionate towards humanity and secondly, He is faithful towards God. He is faithful in his relationship to God as he lived on this earth, and therefore he's able to be our high priest. I want to see two aspects to his faithfulness that qualified him to be this high priest. The first one is in verses uh, 5 and 6. Do you see those quotes? See those quotes in your Bible? What this is getting at is the appointment of Jesus to the role of high priest. And the priestly line were all, under the Old Covenant, of the tribe of Levi. And high priests were a subset within that tribe of Levi, and they came specifically from the line of Aaron. Remember from the book of Exodus? Numbers chapter 3 is where you read about that. It says, you shall appoint Aaron, this is Moses, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. This line must be kept going. And the very tremendously important thing here in verse 4 and 5 is that priests do not appoint themselves. Priests don't appoint themselves. God appoints them through their line. There's no such thing as a self-ordained priest. And this is where the concept of ordination comes in ministry. Uh, These days, one of the ways it comes about, you don't ordain yourself a pastor. You know, the, the, the church does that. The people of God do it on behalf of God. Now, can you imagine 
I was thinking about this. Can you imagine if back under the old covenant, you could ordain yourself to be the high priest? We would have like this competition Who's got the best, uh, best, best looking, flashiest dressing, uh, um, nicest cars, coolest, best website, and there would just be this kind of come to our temple, we've got a better one. Um, it's just, it would just be chaotic, right? Um, mega church priest. Um, that did not happen. And, and we were saying, okay, okay, so what? Think on this. To show Christ's faithfulness to God despite his superiority. He too was appointed. That's what it says in verse 5. Jesus was appointed to this role of high priest by God the Father. He did not take it up for himself. And there are those two quotes. The first one is from Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. You're my son, today I have begotten you. It's saying Jesus is the Son of God. It's a royal psalm speaking of the Messianic King. And then there's a quote from Psalm 110 verse 4, which speaks about a priestly king, and it says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's confused? Who's confused? It's okay. Um... And in Psalm 110, we've got this priest king. And the reason why this is being said is because to the original audience, they would have seen a huge problem. And maybe they were considering it. They were considering going back to Old Covenant Judaism because they're like, how can Jesus be our priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not of the sons of Aaron. How is he qualified to be the high priest? Jesus, what tribe was Jesus from? He was born as a Jew. What tribe was he from? Anyone? Judah. Kings come from the line of Judah. Priests don't come from the line of Judah. How does this work? How is he qualified for this role? And that's where Melchizedek comes in. And if you want to read about this, uh, it's in Genesis chapter 4, this shadowy Old Testament figure who shows up, stays for a little while with Abraham, and then disappears right again. No mother, no father, not even Jewish. Where did he come from? And we'll look at all of that in chapter 7. We will look at that. But the one thing we do need to know about Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14, verse 18. And it says this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. This man with no father, no mother, he's king of a place called Salem. And he is priest of God Most High. He's the king who's the priest. That is what Jesus is. The old covenant priest was the son of Aaron and of the tribe of Levi. But this is okay. This new priest, this great high priest, not the son of Aaron,
of the Son of God, of the tribe of Judah, but a different kind of priest, of the order of Melchizedek. And that is why he's able to be an eternal priest. God knew what he was doing. And that those, this part of Genesis, Genesis 14, right about that time, that was written many hundreds and hundreds of years before Hebrews. God knew what he was doing. Many hundreds of years before the Incarnation. So Jesus was appointed by God and he was qualified to the role. Despite his greatness, he did not take it up for himself. That is humility. And secondly, in verses 7 to 10, in his faithfulness to, towards God, Jesus showed obedience through suffering. I want you to note a couple of things. In verse 8 it says, oh, sorry, firstly in verse 7 it says, in the days of his flesh. Showing that the Son of God became incarnate. Truly God, truly man. All right, we'll talk about that with Christmas coming up very shortly. But it says in verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Ask yourself the question, if Jesus had to learn obedience, you got a child, you have to teach them how to learn obedience, right? Does that mean Jesus was disobedient? That's a problem. And then it says in verse 9, And being made perfect. What? Does that mean he was imperfect at any point? This is a real problem. Jesus was the son who learned obedience. In chapter 4, verse 15, it has just been said that he was yet without sin. Jesus never, ever sinned. So therefore it cannot mean when he learned obedience, he went from disobedience to obedience. It can't mean that. Jesus was never disobedient towards his father for one second of his entire life. And then it says, he was made perfect. Does that mean he was imperfect? In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, we've just seen something similar of that language. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many more sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does it mean that Jesus had to learn obedience and what does it mean that he had to be made perfect? Simply this. That Jesus Christ was obedient, he was submissive, but it was untested. He was untested for this role. He had to live, he had to suffer, he had to be put under trial to show that he was able to be Savior. Yes, he was good, but he needed to be tested. He needed to suffer. He needed to see and feel and experience his weakness so that he could be faithful and compassionate towards us.
the languages here that Jesus Christ made perfect, he was made complete to be Savior and priest. Jesus' life matters. And so if someone says to you, well, why couldn't God have just made Jesus incarnate directly there on the cross? Like, why couldn't he have just done that? Or worse, why couldn't you have just put the baby on the cross? Um, people say stuff like that. The simple answer is, is right here. He had to be tested. Jesus' life matters. Thirty odd years of perfect obedience to the will of his Father. It really, truly does matter. And we see here that he had suffering and tears and supplications with loud cries. Jesus prayed multiple prayers in anguish. Anguish. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. Think of him there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Have you thought of the fact that Jesus, when he prayed, received an answer of no? Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. You know what the reply was? No. No. The cross was a path of suffering laid out for Jesus so that he might be the source of salvation for all. What an agonizing experience you must be. It must be for the Son of God to hear no. And I'm not even saying an audible no. It was silence as he prayed. Jesus Christ prayed to the one who could save him from death. His prayer to the one who could save him from death was answered. It's so important to see that Jesus in his suffering and in the most difficult human experience possible, cried out, cried out in trust. He did not hide, he cried out in trust. And we're told he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 7. The word for reverence is it's speaking of someone who's been Submissive. It's a, it's a submissive posture towards the will of God. He was heard because he sought to do God's word. Uh, God, God's will. What made Jesus submit to just the most brutal, painful, difficult suffering possible? We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He looked ahead, saw what the result of his salvation would be, and he endured the cross. 
If you're a believer here today, you are part of those many sons who have been brought to glory. You are part of the joy that was set before him. So in Jesus being qualified, we see that he was faithful towards God, compassionate towards humanity, and therefore together able perfectly to reconcile us to God. I want to round this out briefly with some comparisons between the Old Covenant High Priest and Jesus as High Priest, because that's what this is doing, right? You can tell that this text is making comparisons between Aaron and his line and Jesus. I'm going to give you your money's worth this morning. Nice big word. One such way the Bible makes comparisons internally, especially between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is with something called typology. Types. We must ask ourselves, what was the function of the high priest under the Old Covenant? The answer was, was to represent the people of Israel before God to offer sacrifices for their sins. In much the same way, Jesus does that too in the New. But we must say that that Old Covenant high priest, in an ultimate sense, pointed ahead to what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was ultimately far greater. If you're reading the Old Testament for yourself and you get to a place like Leviticus and it's got all these ceremonial laws relating to sacrifices and washings, why do we not do those anymore? You ever you ever run into someone that does, tries to keep Old Testament dietary laws and ceremonial washing and if there's a, there's a, a leper, you kick them away somewhere far away to like Hamilton, something like that. Um, so the, the Passover feast, why don't we do that anymore? The answer is, we recognize that those things, those animal sacrifices and everything else, were pointing to something greater. And was pointing to something that has now come. Types, such as those sacrifices and the priests, terminate, they finish when the reality comes, the greater thing comes. Types terminate with their anti-types, that's the word. When they're fulfilled, they are no more. To use a human example, if you've got a loved one or a friend of some sort, and they're somewhere else, and you're, you're Skyping them, or you're FaceTiming them, and that person walks into the room, Maybe this is you. I hope not. Do you keep Skyping them while they're in the room? No, you don't. You go, okay. Hi. You know, that's what you do. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. And in three ways in this text, we see him fulfilling the typology of the Old 
Testament priesthood. Firstly, in humility. Aaron and his line were appointed by God to serve as high priest. They did not choose himself. Jesus Christ, far greater, the Son of God, likewise did not raise himself up, but was appointed by God. If anyone had the possibility and the opportunity to put, consider themselves the high priest and appoint themselves, it would be the Son of God. He didn't. He shows greater value and therefore greater humility. Secondly, Jesus had greater solidarity with people. The Old Testament high priest offered sacrifices for sins on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ offered himself on behalf of the people. Greater solidarity. He took the curse of sin himself. And all of this combines to a different office of old versus new high priest. Is Jesus Christ following in the exact same line as the old Testament, Old Covenant High Priest? The answer is no. That's what the argument is here. He's from a different order. He's not from the sons of Aaron. Hebrews 7.12 says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Under the Old Covenant, the priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. His role ended when he died. He had to offer sacrifices continually under the Mosaic Covenant. But with Jesus, he is an eternal high priest. He offers himself once for all. Huge, huge difference. A wonderful, amazing increase. And so when we add all of this up, we see that Jesus was better than everything that came before or will come. If you're tempted, like the people are here, to say, is this Christianity really worth it? The answer is yes. Because you will not find anything or anyone better than Jesus. Of the dying on the cross for our sins, the resurrection is proof that Jesus was saved from death. He was heard because of his reverence. And our response, our response, says in verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Does that mean we need to obey perfectly and live a perfectly obedient life to be saved? No. That would make us the source of salvation, not Jesus. Obey him means listen to him. Listen to the message of what he has done, and hold on to him by faith. It's receive him as prophet, who speaks on behalf of God, priest, who brings us to God, and king, who rules over this kingdom that we have now come to join. And as we come now to the Lord's Supper, I will simply, very simply say this. Jesus 
was appointed by God to be your high priest, to bring you to God, to give you forgiveness for your sins, to be the source of salvation. He shows that to us visibly here in the supper, and therefore we are called to persevere in faith. Don't look anywhere else. Let's pray.